Let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're going to open up to the book of Ephesians. And let's turn to chapter 4. We're actually going to hit uh, several passages through the rest of the book of Ephesians. This is a great time to kind of stop and step back a little bit and get the big picture of what's going on before we get caught up in the details again. Because the book of Ephesians divides right in half very nicely. And the Apostle Paul does this with a lot of his epistles. He spends the first part of the book talking about the doctrine, the the teaching, the theology that lays the foundation. And then he gets into the practical part. How do you flesh that out in your life? For the rest of the book, it's going to say, now behave this way and this way and this way. Why? Because what we know, what we believe, determines how we behave. Sometimes people get the impression that doctrine is kind of academic. It's not. Doctrine actually provides the foundation for the practical. And that's what we're looking at as we dig into this passage. Let's start in chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There were times when I was growing up when maybe my friends would get to do something and I would ask and I wouldn't be allowed to. Or maybe I had to do something that maybe some of my other friends didn't seem to have to do. And there were times when I would approach my parents over this and say, well, so-and-so gets to do it or, or they don't have to do this. Why do I have to do this? The answer was always similar. Uh, it would either be, well, I'm not their parent. <laughs> I am your parent. Or they're not my kids. You are. Or because... You're a McClellan, and this is how McClellans do things. But the point was simple. This is our family. This is who we are. And this is how we behave. That's really what we're seeing in the book of Ephesians when we get to chapter 4. That's the kind of answer that God is giving us. We've been learning in the first three chapters who we are as children adopted into God's family, as He talked about in chapter 1 who we are as God's precious possession and, and this great eternity and this inheritance that we have coming from God. We've been learning about who we are, and remember the key phrase of the book of Ephesians, especially the first three chapters, in Christ. Who am I in Christ? And now what he's going to do is he's going to say, because of who you are, this is how you live. Because you're a child of God, this is how you live. Because you're in Christ... This is how you live now. It is a change in life. They used to live a different way, as he pointed out in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. It says you used to live in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But now there's been a change. You're alive in Christ. And so this is how you live like that. In fact, notice what he says in chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You're a child of God. Live up to it. And that's the awesome thing about Christianity. We don't live in order to be. In other words, he's not saying obey God so that you get the blessings of God. Actually, what he's been saying for the first three chapters is you already have the blessings of God, so now obey God. Because that obedience is what would be worthy of being somebody that is blessed by God. Christianity is not about cleaning up your life. It's not about doing the right thing so that you can become or hopefully eventually be accepted as a child of God. Christianity is God making you His child. And now He's saying, live up to it. Walk in a manner that's worthy of who you are. 
You've been called by God. And that's talking about that effectual call where He calls you to Himself for salvation. He says, you've been called by God. Live up to that calling. In chapter 1, in verse 18, He had told us, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Really, kind of the first three chapters is easily summed up in that verse 18. He says, I'm praying that you'll have insight, that you'll be enlightened, so that you can know the hope of your calling. Now in chapter 4, he's saying, now, how do we live up to that calling? The wording in here is the word axios. It means to, to raise the beam on the other side of the scale. In other words, if you picture a scale and the, the plates are kind of uneven, axios means you take that plate that's lower and you raise it up to the height of the other side. And so it's balanced. And so what he's calling us to do is to have a life that is balanced. A life where our doctrine and our duty balances. The principles that we know from the Word of God that our practice in life is brought up to it. This is the point where it gets intensely practical. Now your practical living needs to line up with your spiritual position in Christ. You're already part of the family of, of God. You're, you're in Christ. Now, your life, your living, needs to line up with that. And so that's what we're looking at here today, is this idea of a worthy walk. What does it mean to live in a way that is worthy of the calling that we've been called to? Well, today we want to kind of do a summary. But we're going to follow that word walk through the rest of the book of Ephesians because it's a word that comes up repeatedly and it pretty easily outlines the last three chapters as he continues to remind them to continually be careful how they walk as they live out their life in Christ. Now the word walk, he's obviously using it to describe your your way of living. And as we look through this passage, there are six different elements that we find of this worthy walk. The first element that we see as we begin right in chapter 4 and verse 1 is that we are to walk in unity. To walk in a way that is worthy of the character of Christ, we must walk in unity as His followers. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then from right there, it's all about their relationships with one another. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we're going to walk worthy of Christ, it's a call to unity within His family. You know, I remember when my kids were all home, and even when they're not now, unity is a very important thing in our family. We've got a little bit of disunity in our family. And that disunity causes the greatest source of pain that we experience within our family. Lisa and I, even as our kids are out of the house and stuff, we love to see our kids take an interest in each other. Even though they have their own families and stuff like that, we love to see them take an interest in each other, that they still communicate with each other, that they like to do things with each other. You know, we love when, like for example, when maybe Dan and Liz and their family come home for a visit, and we love that time with our kids and our grandkids. We also like it when they take some time and go to like Zach and Leah's house. Or Leah comes down more often because Dan and Liz and the kids are there. Because even though it takes time away from us maybe in some of those things, We like to see that they care about each other and that there's a unity amongst the family and a unity amongst our children. Well, God's looking down from heaven to earth and He's experiencing the same thing. He likes to see that His children care about each other and that there's a unity within the family. 
You know, everything that we see in, in chapters 4 through 6 has already been laying the foundation for it in the chapters previously. And when we look at chapter 1, in verses 9 through 10, he says, "...making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth." And so he told us all the way back earlier in chapter 1 that this is part of God's plan is to take and unite, to bring together all things in Christ. And this is something that this church was dealing with a little bit on a very practical level as now Gentiles had got saved and come into the church too. So you have people of very different cultural backgrounds with Jews and Gentiles. And when we've seen through studying chapter 2 and on up through chapter 3 that He's writing to them and telling them, look, you used to be on the outside looking in, and now you're brought close. In fact, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. And a little farther down in the passage, he says he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And he told the Gentiles, which would have felt like they were a little more on the outside, he had told them in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but they are fellow citizens. He tells them they're fellow members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He talks about them being joined together and also being built together into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. And so he has already laid the foundation for that in the first three chapters as we get this understanding of the plan and the program of God to have this tremendous unity. He's bringing all things together. God, throughout time, has been gathering His people together. He gathered Israel together. And then He gathered them for feasts and holy days. And he, now He gathers the church. And He calls us to assemble together. God's always gathering. But if we're going to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ, then we're going to be people of unity. Then we're going to be people that come together because we have Christ in common. Well, not only are we to walk in unity, but we're also to walk in holiness. In chapter 4, and verses 17 through 32, he calls us to walk in holiness. Now, at first he starts off by admonishing us not to walk in a certain way, but that also is part of holiness. Holiness is being separate from that which is evil, from that which is wrong, sinful, and being united with that which is good. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." He's saying, look, the Gentiles continue to live a life absent from the presence of God. And because of that, because of their hard-heartedness and their rejection of God, their life is going to show that. You cannot believe that there is no God and not end up living like there is no God. And so that's what is taking place in the world that's around you. 
But he says, you're going to be different. You are not going to walk. You need to not walk like the Gentiles. Not walk like the world that you're surrounded by. Because he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. The way you learned Christ, and he comes to a conclusion at the end, is in true righteousness and holiness. You see, if we're going to live up to the standards of God, we're going to have to get rid of some things in our life that are not consistent with the character and the nature of God. If we're going to live our life worthy of the calling that we've been called to, then we're going to have to put on some things, put some behaviors in our life that are worthy to the calling of Christ. And and in Ephesians, we don't have time to go into the depth of it this morning, but he's going to lead them through this process where it looks like he's telling them to change clothes. And he really kind of is. He's telling them to basically take off their grave clothes, right? Because they were dead in their trespasses and sins. And that's what they were clothed with. So unclothe yourself of those things, those transgressions and those sins. But put on the new man. The one, remember, we've been raised by Christ. And so now put on the, the new man that is, and so put on those good deeds, those good works that God's laid out ahead of us in our life to be able to accomplish that he mentioned in chapter two. And it's an exciting thing to experience that transformation in your life as you become this new creation that you were made in Christ Jesus. You know, he's already begun that way back in chapter one and verse four. He says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You see, He already laid the foundation. What did God do in my life? Verses 4 and 5 were some of the memory verses I had in a doctrines class when I was in college. I memorized this passage without ever really trying to memorize it, just because I got thinking about what it meant. And that God's purpose in my life as He chose me was to make me holy. To make me blameless. Me who was unholy. Me who had blame. God was doing an amazing thing in my life when He would call me to Himself and choose me to make me holy and blameless. What an opportunity. What a privilege to experience that what I did not deserve. That's one of the primary attributes of God is holiness. So many of these things, the foundation has so been laid for us before because it talks about us being children of God, this glorious inheritance. If we're children of God, we ought to look like our Father, which means we ought to be holy. We ought to see that that holiness that is in Him ought to be seen in us. Hebrews even says in chapter 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so it actually even ties that holiness of character to our position through our salvation. If you're genuinely saved, genuinely have faith in Christ, then you're going to start to look like your Father and you're going to grow in your personal holiness. If you're not growing in your personal holiness, then you need to question your belonging in the family, your salvation, because we should be coming more and more like Jesus Christ, looking more and more like our Heavenly Father. But in Ephesians, he's telling them, look, because you're part of the family, this is how the family behaves. Well, number three, as we look at it, we should walk in love. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore be imitators of God, and that makes sense because God is love, as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In 1 John, the Apostle John would write to the people and say, you know what, if you say that you have a relationship with God, that you love God, but you don't love your brother, you hate your brother, he says, you're a liar. It's kind of the same thing we already talked about with holiness. God is love. And so if God is your Father, you're going to love. That's just all there is to it. 
He laid that foundation for us also in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So in chapter 1 verse 5, we see that we experience the love of God for us through Him choosing us and calling us and drawing Him to Himself through this salvation that we experience. But then He also went in much deeper than that in uh, verses 17 through 19, he says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth. I'm sorry, it's actually in chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Remember, we just talked about that recently, how the, we had. Christ has such love for us and the Apostles' prayer for us is that we would really get a hold, that we'd get some kind of understanding, some kind of comprehension of how deep the love of Christ is for us. Well, here's kind of the idea. If we experience so much of the love of Christ, if we understand the depth and the width and the length and the height, if we understand the love of Christ and how much we are overflowing with the love that He has for us, then how can we not but overflow onto other people in our love for them as well? This is primary. This is foundational. Jesus Christ came and saved us. Why? Because He loved us. He entered this world to become our Savior. He was willing to go to the cross and lay down our life. He endured all those people spitting on Him and pulling out His beard and beating Him and nailing Him to a cross. He went through all of that. Why? Because of His love for us. So if we're going to live in a life that's worthy of what we've been called to, it's going to involve love. It's going to involve loving other people. Even sometimes, you know, people don't always appear real lovely. But you know what? We're part of those people that don't always appear lovely. And Christ loved us anyway. We need to love people anyway. And so love is going to be what we walk in as well. He also mentions briefly this idea of walking in light. In chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, he focuses on that, especially in chapter 5 and verse 8. He says, For at one time you were in darkness. And what he was talking about right before that was the darkness of the world that's around you. And with the darkness of the world that's around you, he says, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You know, this last week we had a glow-in-the-dark night. We always have one night of the year with our Club Jam ministry, our Jesus and Me ministry, where we have glow-in-the-dark night and the kids all pick up things through the week that are glow-in-the-dark. Bracelets and necklaces. And, and some of them had these things taped to their pant legs and stuff like that. And I thought that was kind of creative and cool. And, and we come and, and we do a lot in the dark that night. We turn out different lights in the church and stuff so that the glow-in-the-dark stuff lights up better. And when we, when we do game time, we shut out the lights in the fellowship hall and make it dark in there. So all you see is these lights buzzing around the room while we play these different games. And they really love it. And one of the things that I pointed out to him was that when you turn all the lights on, you can't really tell if it's working. Because with the whole room light, the light doesn't really show up that much. But the minute you shut out the lights, it's just bright. Because that's what light does. It pierces the darkness. The darker the area that you're in, the sharper the contrast of the light. And that's what he's in verses 3 up to verse 8, he's been talking about the darkness that is in the world. And then he tells them in 5.8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of that light. 
as we're going to walk worthy of being children of God, we will have to walk in light. Because as John tells us in 1 John, in Him is light. There's no darkness at all. He's the light of men. He's the light of the world. If we're going to be part of Him, if we're going to live up to our calling, then we're going to have to shine. As you see the world growing darker around you, don't be discouraged. It's a chance for you to shine brighter. It's a chance to show more distinction between what it means to be a Christian and what the world is like without Him. We don't have to get discouraged when we see things growing darker around us. It's just a chance to shine the light of Christ into a situation. And those things become more visible in a darker environment. Now, hopefully, our goal is to shed enough light that it starts to come out of that darkness. No doubt that people respond to the light of Christ. But at either rate, our light should be the same. Well, he laid the foundation for that already in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, which we've already read. And we talked about him uh, wishing them or praying for them that they would have their eyes enlightened. Their eyes enlightened. And it's not, it's not only that. I realize that's a small reference to the word light. And he hasn't really used much of the word light in, previous, uh, in the first three chapters. But you know what? The, the first three chapters is completely about that if you think about it. Because the Apostle Paul says here, I want you to know the hope of your calling, that you would, having your eyes enlightened, know what is the hope of your calling. The whole first three chapters, he's been trying to do just that, enlighten them, so that they would see who they're in Christ and then live up to it. Live in that light. Live in light of their position of Christ. And so we need to walk in light. But then he also In chapter 5, verses 15 and following, he tells them that we need to walk in wisdom. In chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know, there's a distinction between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to take the knowledge and know where it fits in life. Wisdom is what takes what you know and helps you to use it to make good decisions, to do the right thing. And that's what he tells them in this passage. Don't be unwise, be wise. Make good use of your time. Walk in wisdom. Well, he gave us a foundation for that back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So we are the benefactors of the wisdom of God as He put together this plan of salvation. And then He prays again in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. But He's praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they could get their minds wrapped around what's taken place within them so that they can then make those good decisions and flesh it out that we would not waste our time. Now this last one that he mentions when we get to chapter 6, he changes his word. No longer does he use the word walk, he uses the word stand. Uh, I think the analogy makes him shift the use of the word to one that would fit a little better with the analogy. And what we're to stand in is we're to stand in warfare. Because he warns us, you're in a battle. You're in a spiritual war. 
And this is the passage where he's going to go through the whole armor of God and tell him to, to put on the helmet and the breastplate and take the shield of faith and have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel peace. And he's just going to have you put on this whole armor of God because you're in the middle of a battle. In chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's been talking about walking in our Christian faith. When it gets to this warfare, he says, now you're going to need to stand. Because that's what you do in a battle. You stand. You stand. You come ready. And you meet whatever is coming before you. And he uses this word repeatedly through this passage. In uh, verses 13-14, through he says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, He's given us that foundation as we've mentioned with each one of these things. He's given us that foundation already. You see in chapter 1, verses 19-22, through 22, He talks about the power that God has given us for this battle. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet. You know, that's what they did with their enemies back then. They put their neck under their feet. And gave Him as head over all things to the church. You see, he said what God has accomplished for us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the dead, through the greatness of His power, He has already overcome. And so as we face our battles, as we are involved in this spiritual warfare, and we come against these dominions, these authorities, these powers, these rulers of darkness, he says you need to do one thing, stand. He's given us all the equipment to be able to stand with. And it's through His power that we're able to be able to stand. But He says, you do this, you stand. You know what? I've heard people that don't understand Christianity say that Christianity is a crutch. And I guess in one sense, maybe it is a crutch. A crutch helps you to stand. And to be honest, if I was left to my own power, I'm not that good at standing. But you know what? Christianity is not for the weak. Sometimes it's going to seem like the whole world is going downstream and you're swimming up. Mixing my metaphors a little bit. It's hard to stand in that, I guess. <laughs> but you know what? You've got to stand. Having done all to stand and to stand firm. Stand therefore. Take a stand. Courage is part of our makeup as Christians. In fact, you know, as God sent the children of Israel into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, He kept telling him the same thing. Be strong and of good courage. Why? Because they were going to have to stand against a lot of enemies. In fact, the whole land was full of enemies that they were going to have to stand against. But God continued to tell them, don't be afraid because I'm with you. Be of good courage. That's what Ephesians is telling us in chapter 6. Don't be afraid. God's with you. It's His might. Stand. 
So as we consider our calling in Jesus Christ and what it means for us to live up to it, there's a summary of what it means. There's some things for us to, to get busy on in our life or to continue to be busy on in our life. We need to walk. As we walk with Christ, it's a walk of unity. We're going to be one with one another. As we walk with Christ, it's going to be a walk in, in holiness as we separate from that which is evil and we do that which is good. It's a, it's a walk in love as we, as we love one another deeply. It's a walk in light as we're willing to stand out in this dark world. It's a walk in wisdom as we make the best use of our time and we choose wisely as we take the knowledge of who we are in Christ and we apply it to this life. And it's a walk or it's a stand in warfare where we take a stand for Christ and we're willing to pay the price. You know, the Apostle Paul, sitting in prison, he was willing to pay the price to take a stand. And that would be us as well, walking and standing in and with Christ.